You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. So we're in a former farm field, so I hope you know what it means to be in the short rows. Our summer mini-series, Conformed to the Image of God's Son, Jesus, is almost over. So Pastor Brad will be concluding the series soon, and I have the privilege of preaching this week uh, to continue the mini-series. My name is David. I'm pastor for Creative Arts. So we are conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, with the people of God. We're conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, with the people of God. Our text this morning will continue to show this truth, that the power of the Spirit through the Word, together with the body of Christ, the people of God, will form us more and more into the image of Jesus, both in our minds as they're transformed and in our actions as they manifest inward truths. So there is something about these uncertain times, these unprecedented times, these strange circumstances that we live in, Uh, It shakes us out of our routines. It forces us to ask questions that we otherwise might not be asking. So for real, all this surreal stuff that we're dealing with brings up some deeply existential questions. Where did this come from? Where where is it all going? I like to think of this as the Cotton Eye Joe dilemma. Uh, Good luck getting that out of your head today. Uh, When everything around us is uncertain, though, we're more prone to pause and ask. Uh, where did this come from? Where is it going? What, what really matters in all of this? Why is this happening? The transition from home to college and then back home two weeks later for some of you, uh, it does this. The transition does this. It, it causes us to ask questions. Uh, the transition from college to adulting, which some of us are still in, the transition of having kids. These circumstances often force us to wonder big things. What are we doing? And that's how coronavirus is like parenting. Uh, In both cases, we're asking, what are we even doing? Um, This morning's passage of scripture, though, is an anchor point for life. I occasionally, I find myself asking, what am I supposed to be doing? And sometimes I'm asking that as a parent. Sometimes I'm asking as a pastor, and sometimes just as, as me. So Micah 6.8 is an anchor point for all of those contexts. And it reminds me that God has preemptively answered this question. What am I supposed to do? What does God require of me? So first, let's read the text. Then we'll consider context. And then lastly, we'll explore the implications for us from the text with some of that along the way too. So would you stand as I read from the ESV translation, which we've already heard from Jeff as well. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord, or Yahweh, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So who was Micah? Micah is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. So not minor in importance, but minor in size. So major prophets refers to the really long books, like Isaiah, Ezekiel. Minor refers to Micah, Nahum, Malachi, and the others that comprise the Book of the Twelve, or minor prophets. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. So if you remember when we preached through the book of Isaiah in 2018, you may remember that Isaiah was part of the upper class in Jerusalem who hung out in the temple, and indeed he received an amazing vision of God there in the temple. And he dealt with a lot of sweeping political issues in his prophecies. Micah, in contrast, was from a rustic, obscure village, an anger, if you will, about 25 miles from Jerusalem. And accordingly, Micah had a perspective on personal religion and morality rather than nationwide political issues. If you read the whole book of Micah, which doesn't take too long, you'll notice that there are still, though, connections between personal morality and God's judgment on his people as a whole. So as a side note, although each of us has a personal relationship with God, we also have a relationship with God as his people corporately. So God used both of these prophets, Micah and Isaiah, to speak to different needs in the split kingdom of Israel and Judah. It's helpful to remember that God chooses to use folks from various backgrounds with different gifts or perspectives and sometimes handicaps to address the various persons who make up his people. Some of you may be wondering why we sang a song from Advent this morning, a song that refers both to the second Advent and the first Advent. It looks forward to that second advent when our king returns, as Mike said. So Micah spoke of both advents. And you may remember as well that Micah contains one of the specific messianic prophecies that the long-expected Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This prophecy occurs in chapter 5, just before our text, and potentially part of the same sermon, if you will. So... Catching us up, what is, what is happening here in chapter 6 specifically? This is a courtroom scene. Again, you may remember the extended courtroom scenes that we encountered in Isaiah's prophecies, uh, where God has a case to make against the nations, and even a case against his own people. Or you may recall our sermon series in John, most recently, which is also a courtroom scene, in which John is making a case for Jesus' divinity. And we, the readers, are the jury. But in this brief courtroom sequence here in Micah 6, Micah prophesies as the prosecuting attorney. And Israel, or God's people, they're the defendants. And the mountains are actually the jury called to witness these arguments. And at first, God points out some important things to remember. So if you're looking at your Bible, if you're looking on your screen or in your text, look at the beginning of 6. Verses 1 through 5, you'll see the role of Moses and Aaron 
and Miriam brought up. Uh, You'll see the crossing of the Jordan implied as the people came into Canaan. These stories are being retold as part of this argument. And the reason God is asking his people to remember rightly is because they're acting like they've forgotten. At this point in time, there's an enemy arrayed against Judah. And the people were afraid and beginning to panic and acting like the surrounding tribes and nations while they feared this enemy. They were acting like maybe we need to act a different way to get salvation out of this. They had forgotten the incredible faithfulness of God to rescue them every other time. He had rescued them from every enemy up to this point. But God's people were not following God's command. And in fact, they thought they had a grievance against God because he was allowing this terrible foreign ruler to threaten them. So God reminds them of the last two times that this had happened like this. He's reminding them he used supernatural means to save them. And here's another side note. When you look forward into the history of this particular context, God did it again. He protected his people with means that appeared supernatural. A Greek historian records how the forces of Sennacherib, that's the name of this foreign ruler who's about to invade, his forces were decimated by a plague, forcing them to retreat. So God didn't even let his people get into a fight. Yet, here they are, doubting that something like this could happen and questioning God's faithfulness. And in their panic, they begin to bargain with God. This is where our verses pick up this argument. It's as if the people are saying, with this crazy circumstance we're living in, uh, living in fear, not knowing what's about to happen, sound familiar a little bit? What are we supposed to do? Should we give as many offerings as we can? Should we do like the pagan nations around us and sacrifice children? Because that's what this phrase, give of my firstborn for my transgression, is hinting at. Is it a reference to the Exodus in which uh, the, the firstborn is killed? Is it a reference to the Hebrew king Ahaz who actually did kill children? Is it a reference to the Ammonites, another tribe in the area, who are recorded in history as having done this to appease Molech, their god? Yeah, probably all of these are implied in this phrase. Micah actually would have expected that all the people hearing this would remember all these layers from the Old Testament as they, they provide much more weight to this line. This whole section of text shows us that the people of God were willing to, to try to buy off God like he's some sort of politician. They were willing to hypothetically offer everything except what God really wanted. So, married folks, let's be honest. You've had this conversation with your spouse. Uh, Well, maybe not the sacrificing your firstborn one, or maybe, but probably more like this. Babe, what's wrong? Why are you so upset with me? I'll do anything to make this right between us. Babe, just tell me what you need me to do. So marriage is a covenant relationship. There are things that we agreed before God and witnesses that we do for one another. And often, I'm actually unwilling to give Sarah the thing that she wants, but I'll do anything to show her that I love her. 
What she wants, that's my wife, by the way, what she wants is my attention, my affection, consistently displayed over time. She's already told me this, usually the last time we had an argument because of my pride, but my selfish heart is much more inclined to just create a list of things to do to earn her love. So God's covenant people, here in our text, the people of Judah, had entered into covenant relationship with God. They were receiving all the covenant benefits, and they would do anything to fix the situation except what God had already told them to do. They were basically saying, babe, don't you remember the wedding ring? The vows that we said that one time? That one time I told you I loved you? And the other one time I took out the trash without even asking? I'll take out the trash a thousand times. I will say I love you 10,000 times. I'll do anything. When it's not about taking out the trash. It's not even about saying I love you. What is it about? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So dial in on this verse. How might we understand the, the fullness of these three phrases together? What's a, what's a big picture view of this verse? So it's a one-line summary of the whole law. And there's a few places, uh, verses that we see like this in Scripture that provide memorable, dense summary statements. Uh, for example, Ecclesiastes, at the very end of the book, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. A summary verse for the whole law. This, this one verse also, it, it connects to the other prophets who were active at the time that Micah was alive, which is really cool. So act rightly or justly, that's the message of Amos. To love kindness or covenant faithfulness, that's the message of Hosea. To walk humbly with your God. That was the essence of Isaiah's message. This verse also echoes Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. It may be cross-referenced in your Bible if you have one of those uh, cross-references there. If not, I would encourage you to look it up eventually or find the PowerPoint in the video. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear Yahweh, your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. So Micah 6.8 is a, a simpler way to remember this command from the Lord. Who else does this, summarizes the law so well? Rabbi Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's clear that God requires repentant hearts and obedience to what he's revealed. It's not a mystery. He told us how to live as his people. So even though Micah 6, 8 is a simple verse, one you could easily memorize and should. Uh, it's not a simplistic verse. 
Each of these phrases has weight. Each has implication for God's people. So what might it mean to do justice? One way of framing justice is that justice is truth in action. Truth lived out is justice. Justice ultimately has in view the proper ordering of all things. Our God, who is the creator and king of all things, has a plan for rightly ordering all things. Sin has thoroughly disordered God's creation. So we long for when God will make all things new and when justice will be perfectly performed as things are all ordered properly. Properly, As Pastor Brad alluded last week, biblical justice is a little different than the ideologies of justice that are thrown around in political discourse right now. And by little, I mean tremendously. A biblical understanding of justice based on a biblical anthropology or understanding of humanity is more comprehensive, more nuanced, more complex, richer, and more powerful than any secular ideological take on justice. In a way, we actually return to the cotton-eyed Joe dilemma. Where did you come from and where are you going? Who made us and why are we here? All secular ideas of justice are rooted in secular answers to those questions. For example, uh, we're here by process of unguided evolution, and we are here to be happy and make sure no one else is hurt while we pursue our own happiness. That ideology will lead to a certain kind of justice, but not biblical justice. We're here because God spoke and the universe obeyed. We're here because God designed our planet to orbit a very certain way at a certain angle, and he beautifully designed every organism from viruses to blue whales. God knit you together in your mother's womb and knew exactly what he was doing. And every person who exists has been made in the image of God. We exist to point to his beautiful creativity, to give him glory. That's why we're here. And where are we going? We're going to live in a rightly ordered society for the rest of time. When all things are made right as a consequence of what Jesus inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. So truly just treatment of every human being will occur and is already occurring in part, but not yet fully realized because our king is not yet returned. So come, thou long-expected Jesus. Biblical justice has to live in this already not yet tension. There is a right order to things. We should act accordingly. We should do justice. But as I was reminded this week in a conversation with Pastor Jeff, we won't do it perfectly. We can't. We're still mired in sin, even when we follow Jesus. So the best justice that we can provide is still only a shadow of the perfect justice that God the Father will establish. So we must show grace to one another as we each and all do justice. Some translations read, act justly. 
And this verse can be understood as act justly yourself. God isn't saying that we should merely talk about justice or virtue signal or just try to get others to act justly. God asks each of us and all of us as his children to do justice. This verse is aimed at your heart if you are his child. It's not a verse to wield against those who are not believers. This verse is delivered to God's people. So the context is first within the covenant community. So as we live spirit-empowered lives, acting on the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us, we should be doing justice, seeing the truth in action with our brothers and sisters. So when things occur that cause people in the body of Christ to grieve, we should grieve. When a person is not treated like an image bearer of God, we must not be complicit, but rather live out the truth that each person's immeasurable value is secured by the image of God that they bear. And this context of the covenant community actually connects us to our next phrase, love kindness, or love mercy. Or you may see a footnote in your Bible that is also steadfast love. What's going on here? This is actually uh, loving kindness or chesed. If you remember, when I've preached before, I love the Hebrew word chesed in the Old Testament. Come on, say it with me. Chesed. That wasn't loud enough. I, I got to hear some throats clearing to say that right. So chesed. I find that English is often inadequate to capture some words from the original biblical languages. And chesed is one of those. It's a word that's translated love, steadfast love, loving kindness, kindness, and mercy, and even grace. One word in Hebrew that captures all of those rich ideas in English. Chesed is a love that manifests itself in gracious action, especially in times of need. It's a love that manifests itself in gracious action, especially in times of need. So God requires us to love kindness, to love chesed, to love steadfast love. I think that means both cherishing God's chesed for us and then demonstrating that chesed to fellow believers and to our neighbors. Another way of framing this phrase is that uh, we're required to love loyalty to the covenant. It's another way to understand chesed as loyal love. So chesed is covenant love, love rooted in promises kept. God requires that we live out the truth, doing justice while loving God's covenant loyalty to us. It's, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, as Paul says. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. Forever. The steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord endures forever in the face of the diaspora of God's people, in the face of raging nations, in the face of world wars, in the face of COVID-19. God's covenant faithfulness to his people endures. If we've benefited from God's mercy, if we've experienced this faithful love, how can we not extend that to our brothers and sisters and even to our neighbors? 
So God requires that we love his covenant loyalty to us that is manifest when we love one another. Finally, walking humbly with your God. This echoes Genesis. When the story of Enoch is recounted, a man who walked humbly with God, and it's implied that he had a tremendous relationship with God because he walked with God. A better translation of this word humble, though, may actually be walk carefully with your God or walk circumspectly. So to walk consciously with God. God has shown us how to walk, and he's calling out the cadence of our steps by his spirit, so we should walk in step with him. But often, we begin to walk with our heads in our phones, less concerned with the walking, more concerned with the entertainment. So walk consciously with your God. My kids walk unconsciously all the time. Just this week, Rosie, our toddler, has walked into a chair, a bench, the couch, a wall, a sibling, my legs, an ottoman, a door, and the dryer. Now, maybe I should give the toddler a pass, right? But my almost nine-year-old walked into a wall last week, too, and my seven-year-old walked into a doorframe. So if we're walking carefully, consciously, all of those obstacles could be avoided, and there would be less screaming in our house. However, when we begin to walk on autopilot, letting our attention be drawn to all the shiny things, absent-mindedly walking with God, of course we're going to hit a wall. God requires that we walk carefully with him. Be still and know that he is God. and He is not just any God. He is your God. He is your father who has adopted you as his child through the work that Christ has done. He has made covenant promises to you through Jesus, and he will keep those promises. Walk consciously with your God, the one who loves you completely. Do justice. Love chesed. Walk humbly with your God. These requirements all have a caveat, however, an asterisk, like most things that happen in 2020. These requirements do not save you. Here's how Walter Kaiser frames it. Thus, this saying, Micah 6.8, is not an invitation in lieu of the gospel to save oneself by kindly acts of equity and fairness, nor is it an attack on the forms of sacrifices and cultic acts mentioned in the tabernacle and temple instructions. It was instead a call for the natural consequence of truly forgiven men and women to demonstrate the reality of their faith by living it out in the marketplace. Such living would be accompanied with acts and deeds of mercy, justice, and giving oneself for the orphan, the widow, and the poor. End quote. This passage is not an invitation to save yourself by acts of justice and kindness, nor does it throw out the system of worship that God established. Rather, it was a reminder that the natural response of folks who've been forgiven is to demonstrate that forgiveness to others, both in the church and outside. Jesus probably had Micah 6, 8 in mind when he said in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, 
you'd give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. God does not require that we do these things to be saved. Do you hear me, Christian? Your doing of these things does not and did not save you. Micah 6.8 is not the way to salvation. Now, please hear me. Doing justice, loving covenant faithfulness and mercy, and walking humbly with God do not save you. Micah 6.8, the ethical way of living as a Christian flows out of your being saved by God. God alone saves you because of Jesus. You are saved from sin and death. So live this way in response. God has shown us what he requires. And Jesus has both perfectly satisfied those requirements on our behalf, in our place, and shown us how to live it out. So let us follow him. Only Jesus did perfect justice. And only Jesus will bring perfect justice, perfect ordering of the world when he returns. Only Jesus fully embodies covenant faithfulness, even to the point of death in your place. And he will be faithful to keep all of his promises, including the promise never to leave us and to return to make all things new. Only Jesus has walked consciously, carefully, and completely with God the Father. But we are even now being conformed to the image of Jesus, learning daily how to walk with God. And when all things are made new, we will indeed walk in conscious fellowship with our Creator, completely embodying all of what Micah 6.8 asks. Because we'll have no other response when we're in His presence, full of awe. So let us not wonder what God has required of us or what he expects us to do in light of our circumstances. Let us live in response to God the Father's goodness in Jesus as we're formed into Jesus' image through our spirit-empowered obedience. Let us live in response to God the Father's goodness in Jesus as we're formed into Jesus' image through our spirit-empowered obedience. Let us do justice, love, kindness, and mercy, and walk carefully and humbly with our God. Would you pray with me? God, may your word dwell richly in our hearts as we've sung it and made melody with it, as we've proclaimed it, as we've prayed it. We pray that in all these things, in all the ways we respond to you, we would exalt Jesus because he is worthy. We cannot thank you enough for what you've done for us in Christ, bringing us into your family to be co-heirs with him. And in the meantime, to be co-laborers in this place. So God, as we exalt Jesus, would you continue to establish us in the truth, proclaimed and seen perfectly in your son and captured in your word. 
And God, may all these things urge us, compel us to engage the world with the good news of what you have done in Christ, what you are doing in Christ, and what you will do in Christ. May your people at Grace Community Church be known as a people who do justice, who love chesed, and who walk humbly with you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.